prayer and specifically learning to pray. Uh, we're, we're, we're taking time and learning to pray to our good, our good God, our good Father. And we spent a couple weeks talking about what it looks like to pray, that, that really at the heart of, of me learning to pray is me becoming like a child, uh, relating to God as a good father, uh, running to him as a, good, as a young child does to their good dad. And in the last week, we talked about uh, dispelling from our hearts cynicism, where as we grow older, we develop this critical spirit that sometimes becomes an attitude of our heart. And we go, I don't even know if I'm going to ask that. I don't even know if, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I trust their motivation in this. And, and it becomes an attitude of our hearts. And it keeps us from relationship with others and relationship with the Father. Well, this morning, we want to go a step further and talk about what does it look like to ask the Father for something? What does it look like to ask your Heavenly Father for something? To ask your uh, good dad for something? What does that look like? We're going to talk about that this morning, but before we do, let me pray. And uh, then uh, we're actually going to end up in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you for your grace to us through him and uh, just the truth that you uh, adopt us into your family. We become uh, children of God. And Lord, you treat us uh, with great love and great care. And uh, we have a great privilege in Jesus to come to you and ask anything at any time. Um, So I pray, Lord, for my heart and for the hearts of each one here who hears us. Might we be uh, more like the hearts who are down in the east wing of our facility, like children, that that we would would run to you and and ask you anything with great boldness and um, trusting that you can do it. Holy Spirit, I pray against the enemy. He would discourage us from prayer. He does discourage us from prayer and uh, would cause us uh, maybe to believe that, Jesus, you're not powerful or that you don't care. Um, Would you teach us the truth this morning and remind us of the truth and help us to believe the truth? Um, I thank you that you forgive me. I pray that you would speak to and through me even as I teach your word. Uh, We love you, Lord, and we pray all of this through Jesus. Amen. Why is it so hard sometimes to ask? Why is it so hard to ask the Lord for something in prayer? You're like, I don't know. I don't know if it's that hard. I ask him for stuff all the time. Yeah, but, but I mean, anything? Or, or do you worry, like, I don't know if I should ask him that. <laughs> I don't know if he cares about that. How many of you prayed for the Cubs to win this week? <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know if I should pray this, Lord, but man, it'd be great if they'd win. Um, do you think it's okay to pray that? You, you know what? I, I don't know that it's wrong to pray that. I think the Lord wants to hear what's on your heart. I think he wants to know you like a good dad knows his child. And he wants to know everything going on in your life. He wants to know what brings you joy. He wants to know what brings you sorrow. Now, does he already know before you ask? Of course he does. But what's the point of prayer? It, it's, it's, it's getting to know my father. So I would encourage you as we go through this this morning, don't be afraid to ask him anything. And as you do that, you start to abide in him and spend time with him, just simply talking to him. And what you're going to find is as you do that, your requests start to change. 
Not because you're afraid about what should I ask, but you just, you change and you become more like Jesus through his word and through prayer. Don't be afraid to ask. Yet, sadly, um, many of us find it really hard to ask if we're honest. And I think it relates to, have you ever noticed how the world perceives prayer? Have you ever noticed? Here's a couple of events that might um, illustrate, I think, how the world perceives prayer. Not quite a year ago, a year ago next week, uh, there was a terror attack in Paris on November 13th of 2015. And at least 129 people were killed. Terrorists went in the middle of a concert and just started firing and, and people died. And the next day, you can see some of the headlines on the 14th that were in the paper the next day. And, and what, would ha- what happened during that time, if, if you were on Facebook or on social media, Instagram, uh, Twitter, whatever, you, you started to see this hashtag pop up that said, pray for Paris. And, and people were, were praying for Paris. And then there was someone else, though, who posted this on Instagram. And this person is an illustrator with a magazine called Charlie Hebdo, who had, who had previously been attacked by terrorists because they had drawn a cartoon of Muhammad earlier in January. And, and here's what they wrote. They, they said this. You can read it on the screen. Friends from the whole world, thank you for hashtag pray for Paris. But we don't need more religion. Our faith goes to music, kisses, life, champagne, and joy. See, the reality is that in, in our world, oftentimes our prayers and our, our faith is rebuffed as unhelpful and unwelcome as it was here. And rather than seeking peace through prayer, as far this, this cartoonist believes that, that religion itself is the cause of conflict and strife. That if only we'd be free from religion, we'd at least find peace, not to mention kisses and champagne and joy. Now, all of those things sound, sound great, but why is it that our world perceives prayer this way as unwelcome and unhelpful? The same thing happened a few weeks later in our nation. There was another attack in, in early December of last year. Uh, and just after the soft target attacks in Paris, the same thing happened in San Bernardino, California, leaving 14 dead and more than 20 wounded. And the front page banner of the New York Daily News read this, God isn't fixing this. And on the cover were highlights of different leaders in, in the United States with uh, things that they had posted on social media. I mean, you can see them there, right? Uh, our, our prayers are with the victims. My thoughts and prayers are with the victims. California in your prayers. Thoughts and prayers are with San Bernardino. And, and their response uh, from the New York Daily News, God is not fixing this. Now, why is it that our culture views prayer this way? Now, the reason I'm going down this road is because I think it helps us understand for us why sometimes it's hard for us to ask for good things for our Father. So stick with me. But but this this whole article, it said prayers aren't working. And it it just complained. It's like, quit praying and do something is basically what they said. So why is prayer viewed this way? Well, I told you this series, um, I, I've kind of borrowed the outline for it from a book called A Praying Life by a guy named Paul Miller. Some of you have picked it up, I think even for your 110 group, you're reading it together. And, and I think he offers a helpful explanation. Uh, Western culture, along with 
he goes into detail on some of this. But did you know that, that Western culture, um, you can go back a slide for me, right, and just hang out, hang out there for right now. Uh, Western culture views um, God and religion and prayer in a way that no other culture really ever has in the history of the world. It's only in the last 200 years that we've really ever uh, started to separate God from culture and spirituality from everyday life. It, it was just, it's interwoven into, and even in other cultures in the world today that aren't influenced by the West or by communism, uh, you, you see spirituality woven into the everyday life of people. And so to, to pray is as natural as it is to breathe. And, and to see God involved in everything is, is just, that's how it is. And it's only been in the last two, 250 years that this has changed. Why? What happened? Uh, reflecting on the ancient world, N.T. Wright, he's a scholar. He wrote, religion was woven tightly into the whole social fabric of the world as it has been almost at all times and in all places in human history. Only the last two centuries in certain parts of the Western world being exceptions. Why is that? Well, I think Miller offers um, the root cause of this pretty well. And, and he goes on to identify the Enlightenment of the 18th century as the primary reason for this. Are you familiar with the Enlightenment? You're like, I've heard of it, but I don't know if I can tell you what it is, Josh, other than when I walk in a room and I turn on the light, Enlightenment, everyone can see. Or when I speak, everyone gets, you know, here's what the Enlightenment is. If you're not familiar with it, maybe you've heard of it, but you don't understand much about it. It's a period of time stretching from the late 1600s to the 1700s. And uh, primarily, though, in the 1700s, after the death of King Louis uh, in early 17, I don't know what it is, early 1700s to uh, the, the French Revolution, I think in 1789, and, and during that time, it's an intellectual movement that dominated the world of ideas in Europe and included a range of ideas centered on reason as the primary source of authority and legitimacy and, and, and came to advance ideals like liberty and progress and tolerance and, and constitutional government and separation of church and state. And did you know our country was born in the midst of the Enlightenment, of this time of, of just thinking about things differently? Now, many good and helpful things came out of the Enlightenment. A lot of really good and helpful things. But, but also during this period of time, leading thinkers, philosophers, basically decided that they didn't need God anymore. That reason, human reason, became the primary authority in their mind. Thinkers like Immanuel Kant divided the world into feelings and facts. And so I've got a chart here to show you kind of how he would divide things up. If you think of that circle on the screen as life, as your life, it would divide life kind of into two segmented pieces. On the top would be your feelings. In other words, things that are true for you. Uh, things like beauty. How do you define, how do you measure beauty? Well, uh, you might think someone's beautiful and I don't and vice versa, Right. How do you define that? How do you, how do you define uh, love? How do you measure love, uh, spirituality, even right and wrong? What's true for you? And it went into this section of thinking. And then he also, also then talked about facts. And he said, now facts are things that are true for everyone. 
like uh, I'm standing on a wood stage right now, right? That's, that's true forever. I mean, it's just reality. You're out of touch with reality if you don't recognize that. That, that a tree is, is planted in the ground outside. When you leave, you're going to see a tree. That's, that's there for everyone. It's a fact. Uh, gravity, it's a fact. And what happened then is he would value facts, what's true for all, higher than feelings, which is true for you. And what he did is he put God in that upper category of feelings of true for me. So it robbed God of any authority because authority is based in reason and in fact. You tracking with me? That's where authority is found. And he lumped, uh, lumped prayer and religion together with other things that we can't be certain of. Like love and right and wrong. And they, they belong to the feeling world of personal opinion. And in the bottom half are things we are certain of. Like I said, like trees or like cars. Or they're public. They're real. They're true for everyone. Well, often I hear a question like this from people. You know, why is it that we read about and hear about crazy spiritual things happening, especially dark spiritual things in other parts of the world, but we never hear about it in the United States? Well, in short, I think it's because of the enlightenment. Because by effectively convincing us that God is just true for you and not true for all, Satan has blinded us from spiritual realities. And whether you realize it or not, you and I are influenced by this way of thinking by growing up in the United States, growing up in the West. We naturally separate spirituality from facts. We naturally separate the church from government. We naturally separate all of these things out. And uh, that's just true for me. I'm not going to touch that. I don't want to impose it on you. So let's just stick to what's factual. And in so doing, we rob God of any power. And basically we rob ourselves of God's power because we don't go to him and trust him to be ruler over everything. Um, The enlightenment mindset marginalizes prayer because we don't permit God to connect with the factual piece, the physical piece of this world. You're allowed a personal local deity as long as you keep him out of your science notes and don't take him seriously. That's the idea. And so what happens then with this type of thinking is, and here's why I think it's hard for us to pray sometimes. I think here's one piece. Is because of this type of thinking, first prayer is labeled as phony because it's just true for you. It's it's phony. It's fake. And then you know what? When it's labeled that way, it feels phony. And and we think, um, if I pray for that, is God really going to do that? I mean... uh, Is God really going to make that thing happen? Wouldn't that probably have just happened anyway if I hadn't prayed about it? Why should I pray? We we rob God of his power in our lives. We rob ourselves of his power. And so, so... I could go on about this forever, but I'm going to bore you to death if I do. The enlightenment basically discredits the spiritual. And we just view the physical and facts as reality. Now, when you combine that with the fact that in church history, often we've done the opposite and we've discredited the physical world and only focused on what was spiritual as being important, uh, which which basically says uh, spiritual things are important, but God doesn't care about these individual small physical things in my life. Then we rob God of his his personhood, of of his being a personal God. So... Let me try to sum it up this way. Here's what's happened, and here's why I think it's hard for us sometimes to pray. Um, 
first off, God has no real influence in the physical world. That's the enlightenment. And then sometimes the church is taught that God really doesn't care as much about the physical world. That's just trivial. He's more concerned with the, the spiritual world. Well, the first, the enlightenment says that God isn't all powerful. And when we believe in, and and we do this subconsciously because of our culture, we start to think, you know what? At a root level, I don't know if I really believe that God is all powerful. You're like, oh, I do too, Josh. I believe he's powerful. Do you? Do you really? I mean, when you pray, do you ask God for big and powerful things? Do you? Sometimes... uh, the reason I say I think at a root we don't always believe God is powerful is because sometimes I don't know that we really ask God to do big and great things. I mean, um, a, a cure for cancer. Should I really pray for a cure for Is God really going to do that? Is he really going to cure it? I prayed for that when my dad was sick. Is he really going to do it? I don't know. I don't know. And if I'm honest, at a root level, I don't know if I really believed in my heart that God was powerful enough to do that. Now, I wouldn't have articulated it that way but I think that's probably what's going on in my heart. I don't really believe that he's powerful enough. I mean, if, if it's going to happen, somebody's going to make a discovery and it's just going to happen anyway. That's just science. That's, no, no, that's enlightenment thinking. That's saying uh, facts are more important than spirituality. And, and when I do that, I rob God of his power in this world. I told you in a few weeks, we're going to reveal some plans for our, our building, right? Of renovating, of expanding it. And uh, one of the things when we talk about that that's going to come up is we're going to go, I don't know if we can do that. That's a lot of money. I don't know if I have that kind of money. I mean, really, here's what it comes down to, Josh, is either uh, there's enough money to do that or there's not. So if there's enough money to do it, we do it. And if there's not, we don't do it. If there's enough money, then we, we're talking about kind of adding on to the front and, and renovating some things in here and in the kids' wing. So if, if we do that, then if we got enough money, we'll do it. But if we don't have enough money, sorry, that's the way it goes, Josh. And you know what happens then? I don't pray. I don't pray. I don't say, hey, God, uh, you own all the cattle on a thousand hills. You're the creator of the universe. You own everything. Would you provide in a way that we know it's you? Would you do something we can't do on our own? Remember I told you to ask your kids a few weeks ago, ask them to pray for God to do something great. I did that so, one, that their faith would be increased, and two, hopefully yours would. Let's pray for God to do something incredible. Because if we don't, you know what we're believing? We're buying into this type of thinking where we say, God really isn't all that powerful. He really doesn't have all the resources to provide for something like this. Let's test him. I believe he's powerful. Um, you know, when we, again, when we don't pray for these things, we just, we don't believe God's powerful. But I think I told you this story before. Have you ever heard the story of the three kids out on the playground? And one of them, his, they're, they're bragging about their dad and how powerful and how rich their dads are. And one of them says, you know what? My dad's so rich. He's a lawyer. And you know what he does? He just signs pieces of paper and then turns them in and then he gets all kinds of money for it. Cool. The other kid, his dad's an author. He says, yeah, well, my dad writes books and he writes them and then they make hundreds and thousands of copies of them and they sell and then he gets lots of money in the mail for his books. And they're, they're like so, they're like bragging about their dad because they know their dad is all powerful 
and rich and wealthy and can do anything. That's what a little kid believes about their dad, right? And then the third kid says, well, you guys got nothing on me. My dad, he writes uh, things on pieces of paper every week. He calls it a sermon. And after he reads it, it takes eight guys to collect all the money. (laughs) That's the faith of a child, right? Uh, We're going to see here in a second, I think, that the antidote to not believing God is powerful is to approach him like a child does their good dad. But we got to understand that we live in a world that's influenced by this thinking that says spirituality doesn't matter. It might be true for you, but, but don't, don't come bringing that into everyday life because it doesn't work. <laughs> and even in the church, we buy into that mindset wrongly. Well, the second side of the coin, though, is sometimes in the church, uh, we've been guilty of believing um, that, that God is only interested in spiritual things. He's not interested in my joy if the Cubs win. He's not interested in whatever else it might be, right? He's only interested in in churchy things, in spiritual things. And in doing that, you know what we rob God of? Not of his power, but we rob him of being truly personal. We we, we look at God as powerful, but we say he's he's pretty powerful, he's pretty busy. I don't don't think he really cares about uh, my day-to-day. I don't think he cares about what gives me joy. I don't think he cares about um, the little things going on in my life that are frustrating this morning or uh, that that happened on my way here, the argument I had with my spouse. I I don't think he cares. I just got to tough it out. (laughs) I just got to tough it out and and focus on different things. You know, some scholars even write, don't, um, in their commentaries, you shouldn't pray for a parking spot. That's too trivial. Don't pray for a parking spot when you go to Walmart later. And maybe the right answer is, well, how else are you going to find a parking spot at Walmart on a weekend? (laughs) Unless you pray. (laughs) Should you pray for small things? Does God really care? When we don't pray about him, that's that's what we're believing. We're believing that he just doesn't care, that he's not truly personal. And, you know, I probably shouldn't pray about that. I'm just a selfish jerk. God doesn't care about that. I shouldn't pray for a better job. I'm just selfish and greedy. I shouldn't do that. Well, then what do you do with promises of Jesus that say, ask whatever you wish and it'll be given to you. Abide in me, trust me, and ask me. Jesus is saying, ask for big things. (laughs) Ask for anything. (laughs) What do you do with those promises? If God isn't truly personal, I mean, all of Jesus' teaching on prayer it can be summarized with that word "ask." Just ask. It, God's more concerned with you. Just even if you don't ask for the right things, I mean, just just ask and get to know your Father, and, and suddenly you'll start to ask for the right things over time. As you spend time with Him, you'll become like Jesus. Jesus is more concerned with you just getting there, connecting with Him. Coming to him with whatever it is on your heart. You can approach the throne of grace with confidence, without fear. 
So in summary, we don't ask because deep down we're not sure if it makes any difference. We're just not convinced that God's all-powerful. And the other reason we don't ask is sometimes we don't really think God is truly personal, that he really, really cares about what's going on in my life. So how do we overcome this? What's the antidote? Well, we've been talking about it for a couple weeks. I think it goes back to you relating to your father as a child. You relearning to relate to your good father as a child. Because think about it. How does a child relate to their good dad? What do they think about their dad? My dad can beat up your dad. Any day of the week with a hand tied behind his back. My dad's tough, right? Now, now granted, maybe you didn't have a good dad, so you don't know that experience. And that's really hard for you sometimes to believe this truth. But don't judge God based on the bad example of your dad. Judge your dad based on the good example of your good father. Right? It doesn't take away from the fact that if you didn't have a good dad, you do have a good dad in the father. And he loves you and he cares about you. And he's strong. He's powerful. Do you believe it? And not only is he strong and powerful, but he cares about you. I can remember when I was a little kid, I don't know if I've ever told this story or not, but um, I, I went to the, the fair. The county fair was in my small town. I grew up in a small town, not unlike Milford in Iowa. And the county fair was there, and my little brother got a new dirt bike uh, for, his, for his birthday that year before. And it was really cool. It was a lot cooler than mine. So I was riding it and I rode it up to the, to the fairgrounds and underneath the grandstands by, they have like a dirt racetrack there. And underneath the grandstands, they had the arcade. And so I rode my bike up and I actually rode it right into the arcade because I just thought this bike is cool. And, and I'm, I'm on my bike, on my brother's bike, I should say, and, and standing there and I wheel up next to a kid playing some kind of game. I don't know if it was Pac-Man or what it was. And he started mouthing off to me. He was a year or two older than me. I, I had to be in like third grade. And, and he's, he's lipping off to me and, and about, why did you bring your bike in here? You know, such a loser. What did, such a jerk. Why would you do that? And I, I was kind of shy as a kid. And so I just kind of, I got quiet and I didn't have a whole lot of confidence. And eventually he got mad. He hauled off and, and punched me. And I ended up getting a black eye. And I remember crying and through my tears riding my bike home. Across town, I can, still, I can still see it. I'm, I'm feeling a little woozy. Like, what just happened? And I got home, and uh, my dad was home. It was a Saturday. And uh, I can remember my dad just really, are you okay? What happened? Why are you crying? What happened to your face? And I told him this story. And he goes, well, why'd you take your bike in there? I don't, I don't know. I just, it was a cool bike. I didn't want to leave it by itself. And it's not my bike. It's Adam's bike. And he'd be really mad if he knew I had it. And so, so tell me what happened. And he cared and he heard the story. And then you know what? He demonstrated his power because then my dad, well, let's go up to the fair and we go up to the fair. And I don't, I don't remember what he said, but I remember this kid who was a couple years older than me, who I thought was incredibly powerful, incredibly strong and so scary, uh, whimpering away and walking away and never talking to me again. And the arcade was free, and we could all play. But it reminds me of the fact that as a kid, I believed my dad was powerful. He demonstrated it. I believed that he was personal. He cared. 
about me. Even when I shouldn't have had my bike in there to begin with, he still cared. Even when in some ways I brought it on myself, he still cared. Do you believe you have a good dad who's powerful and who's truly personal? See, when, when you do, it helps you overcome this enlightenment mindset that we've all bought into. And we go to God boldly and we ask him for anything. No matter how crazy it might sound to everybody else. And I think we see this summed up then when I think Jesus is teaching his disciples this because the one thing, the only thing they ever ask him to do, to teach them to do, is how to pray in Luke chapter 11. And he responds with what we call the Lord's Prayer. We also find it in Matthew 6. He he says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to look at that this morning. And I think what's amazing is the way Jesus teaches us to pray is the way we begin that prayer is praying like a child because he says to pray how? Our father. And this was radical. This was new. You didn't approach God in a tender way. Jesus calling his, his father Abba, which would be similar to daddy in our culture or dada, a really intimate, loving term. And yet that's how he teaches them to pray. That's, we, we lose that. We're taught to pray by Jesus like a child. Let's, let's look at Matthew chapter 6. And actually, let's just start in the beginning of chapter 6. And we'll get into where Jesus teaches us how to pray. But let's set up the context of it a little bit. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 6. He's teaching, uh, imagine Jesus on a large hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee and uh, people blow him on this hill. So the Sea of Galilee, not, I mean, it's maybe three, four times bigger than Lake Sea. So imagine if there's a big hill on the edge of the lake and you're sitting there around and a guy up on top, it's Jesus and he's teaching nice cool breeze. And here's what he says. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Jesus starts out with a warning. He, he says, uh, don't do righteous deeds just so other people can see them. Don't, uh, don't do good things just so that somebody will notice you doing a good thing. Uh, some wrongly take this as we should do everything good in secret, that nobody should ever see us do anything good. That's not what Jesus is saying. He, he's addressing our hearts. He says, don't do it so that you're noticed. He doesn't say, don't get noticed. He says, don't do it so you're noticed. Don't do it for that reason. Otherwise, he says... Uh, you have no reward with your father who's in heaven. See, Jesus is addressing our motivation. What's, what's my motivation for doing right? Where's my heart when I serve? Where's my heart when I give? Where's my heart? We're going to see in a second when I pray, when I fast. You have no reward with your father in heaven if that's your motivation. If getting noticed by others is your motivation, then that's also your reward. Verse 2, so when you give to the poor... Don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they might be honored by men. In other words, when we take our offering later, um, I hope you don't pull out your trumpet and go, Hey, (laughs) look at my gift. I filled it with change this morning. Listen to it. Don't, Don't give like that. like the hypocrites do, so that they might be honored. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. That's their reward, just people noticing. 
And when you give to the poor, Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. In other words, he's saying take extreme measure to guard your heart in the motivation for which you give and do good deeds. And as we're going to see here, it carries on to prayer in really every area of life. Verse 4, so that your giving will be in secret. Now again, does that mean no one should ever see you give or know what you give? No. It just means what's your motivation? Is it the praise of men or the praise of God? And your father who sees what's done in secret, he will reward you. He will reward you. See, the the funny thing is sometimes people use this verse, um, you know, about about giving. And Jesus says, give in secret so that people don't know. And you know what they'll say? Um, If you say, hey, were you able to give to that? Were you able to do anything with this? And they'll say, that's none of your business. Why do you care what I give? You, You shouldn't even know what I give. That's secret. Jesus says, give in secret. You know what, though? When, when we take that attitude, we're doing the exact thing Jesus says not to do. <laughs> because in doing that, we're caring a whole lot about what somebody else thinks about my giving. And Jesus says, don't do it for the applause of others. Don't try to get people to like you. Don't try to please people. Please the Lord. Again, he's coming into prayer here throughout all this. He says in verse 5, now we, here we go. And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For you know what they love to do? They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. It's the same thing when I give, when I do good deeds, when I pray. I need to guard my heart here as I go before the Lord. I'm not doing it so that everybody else sees it and knows it, Jesus says, but that God knows. Because if I do it for the motivation of other people thinking something better about me than I am, that's my reward. He says, here's what he says, verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees what's done in secret, he will reward you. Now, as we read this, is Jesus saying we should never pray in public? That when we pray, I should, really, if I'm going to pray before I preach, I should probably run back in the room over here, close the door, turn my microphone off, pray. Let you guys wait for a little bit, then come back out and get started. Is that what I should do? No, he's just saying, again, it's a, it's a heart motivation issue. He's not saying you shouldn't pray in public. Um, there's nothing wrong with praying in public. Uh, again, be good students of Scripture. What's the context? He's, he's saying guard your heart in it. So he goes on, verse 7, and he says, And so when you're praying... He gives more instruction then about how to pray. He says, don't, don't use meaningless repetition like the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. Jesus is saying don't use meaningless repetition. Is he saying don't repeat yourself when you pray? Is he saying don't pray about the same thing again? Um, you pray, do you think if you pray about something today and you pray about it again tomorrow, that the Lord is up there? Um, did, did you read Matthew chapter 6? Uh, verse 7, don't repeat yourself. I already know. Hush. Do you think he's thinking that? No. He loves to hear you. He loves to hear you ask in persevering prayer. In fact, in Colossians, continue steadfastly in prayer. Colossians 4, verse 2. But, but what he's saying is meaningless repetition. Look, for, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. Hmm. So what Jesus is really saying is don't pray meaninglessly. 
See, in many Greco-Roman religions, the way that you would, you would pray, and it was, a, it was a methodology of prayer that I would just, I'd just keep repeating this thing, and i just repeat it and, and, and mumble it over and over and over until I pestered the gods long enough that they gave in and gave me what I asked for. Jesus is saying, that's just a waste of time. I mean, yeah, ask for it over and over, but, but don't just go through the motions. Come to me. Come to me. I'll give you rest. Don't just go through the motions like some do. It's, it's, loved ones, when we pray, it's not about using the right words. It's, it's not like that um, God only responds to some secret phrase that I pray or if I'm in some secret posture when I pray. He loves you as his child. Go to him like a child would in faith. Don't pray meaninglessly, though. Actually pour out your heart to him. Tell him what you're really feeling, what you're really thinking. Go to Jesus. Don't be afraid to do that. He already knows. Jesus says, don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, he knows and he cares. He's a good dad. So approach him with boldness. And now finally, after dealing with our hearts, Jesus tells us how we should pray. Here's what he says. Finally then, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven. I had to memorize this when I was a kid in the church I grew up in. and Memorize the Lord's Prayer. We prayed it every Sunday as a church. Um, it was just repetition. It was, it was like meaningless repetition at that point in my life because I didn't know Jesus. I was praying like the Gentiles do. And yet after I got to know Jesus and trusted him and you pray our Father... It's curious that that's how he starts it. Jesus is saying, you have a good dad that you can approach at any time with boldness and with confidence. See, but before you can address him as your father, guess what you need to do? You need to become his child. Have you repented of your sin and trusted Jesus and become a follower of his? Uh, Repentance is simply turning from my way of life, turning from my sin and turning to Jesus. And trusting him and walking with him and, and accepting his penalty or, or his, his payment for the penalty I deserve on the cross of God's wrath. And he saves you. He makes you new. In fact, he adopts you into his family as God's child. And so then you can pray, our father, my father. Hey, dad. Abba. Dad. Now think about yourself as a child. Um, if you didn't have a good dad, this will be hard. But imagine you did, because eternally speaking, if you've trusted Jesus, you have a perfect father. So imagine how you wish it would have been. If you had a good dad, imagine yourself as a child, and you run to him, and you're trying to get his attention. <laughs> hey, dad, dad, hey, dad, dad. Dad, I got some. I got to tell you this. Dad, I, I need to ask you for this. Um, dad, would you help me with this? Dad, did you hear about this? How would he respond? He'd love you. He'd listen. He'd hear you. You have a good father in heaven who, who longs for you to approach him as your good dad. Jesus says, then you should, you should pray, hallowed be your name. Now, can you pray this prayer literally? Yeah, sure you can from your heart. Do it. 
but do you have to pray these words? Is Jesus saying, this is the only thing you should ever pray? No, he's, just, he's giving us a template for prayer, right? Hallowed be your name. What's it mean to hallow something? Well, it's the idea of, of, of really loving something, treasuring something, enjoying something. Hallowed be your name. Jesus, hey, Dad, I love you. <laughs> I love you. Would you pick me up? Can I spend time with you? I, I just love being with you. It, it's loving the Lord. Hallowed be your, it, it's loving God. Then he says, pray this, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. That's hard to pray, isn't it? Because if, if you and I are honest, we want our kingdom. You know, we, we want our kingdom and what we want. If there was ever a time uh, when that's more prevalent, it might be this week that this is a good thing to pray. Your kingdom come. Um, this is a prayer for obedience in ourselves, in others, in our culture. And I, let me just say this. I would encourage you on Tuesday, if, if you're registered to vote, go vote. Go vote. Take time to, to, to review the issues before you vote. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. Um, if you want to talk to me privately about it, I'll, I'll share some of my thoughts, but I'm not going to do that from this platform. But, but vote, especially in an election like this. See, what's happening is you're voting not just for a candidate, you're voting for a worldview. Do you know that? You're voting for a worldview. And so you need to review what are the platforms of uh, the parties of these candidates. What, because nine times out of ten, maybe not quite that much, but probably at least eight, most candidates will vote with their party's platform. So uh, does their platform line up with, with a biblical worldview? You're not going to find a perfect one, but which one maybe is closer to a biblical worldview? On, on, when you're looking at two, three, four candidates for a, a certain office, whether it's president or a senator or whoever else, uh, which platform and which candidate uh, espouses views and has people in their ear espousing views that, that are most uh, in line with God's kingdom? How do they view issues like the value and dignity of life? This includes abortion and the unborn. This includes the infirm, mentally ill, the handicapped. Um, how do they deal with finances? You know, Jesus talks a lot about money. Um, do they use it for good? Do they manage it wisely? Do they affirm biblical values of money? Do, uh, do they, how do they view religious liberty? Whether you realize it or not, that issue is huge. Not just for us as a church, but, but that issue, probably other, every other liberty we have as Americans comes down to that issue. I don't have time to explain it now, but the other issue, who, who, would, who would they appoint to a, the Supreme Court? Do those candidates that they would appoint affirm, which one would appoint candidates that affirm a more biblical value? You're not going to find somebody who's perfect. If you're waiting for, for the perfect Christian candidate to show up, guess what? It's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. And with, the way Jesus comes back to it's not by vote. If you notice in Revelation, he just comes in and takes charge. Because, uh, well, here, I, I have this quote I wanted to share with you. Um, if the question were put to popular vote, I don't believe a single state would vote for the coming of Jesus to reign here as he reigns in heaven. I don't believe a single county, a single ward of this city, a single precinct in this country would vote for his coming. The Republican Party would probably vote for the biggest scoundrel on earth rather than for him. The Democrats would vote solidly against him. Even the prohibitionists wouldn't want him here. 
Now I see some of you shaking your heads. Well, shake them. I'm talking facts. This was said about 150 years ago by a guy by the name of Dwight Lyman Moody. And it's as applicable today as ever, isn't it? If we're waiting around for the perfect Christian candidate, um, you're going to be waiting. I hope he comes soon because he's, gonna, he's not going to be up for election, though. He's just going to come in and, on his white horse and, and take over. <laughs> and Jesus is going to set up shop, and that'll be a great day. Right? So, so go vote this week. It's a small thing you can do to extend God's common grace. And if you don't think it matters, go read uh, passages like uh, the books of Kings or Chronicles. Because you know what happens there? There was a group of people, of God's people even, who totally rebelled against God. And they were facing judgment. And they split into two kingdoms. And the northern kingdom, over the course of a little over almost 200 years, they had 19 kings. And do you know how many of their leaders were righteous? Zero. 19 kings, they're all evil. And so what happens in 722 BC is God brings judgment. You can read, this is all in your Bible. You can go read about it. God brings judgment and they're conquered by the Assyrians. Well, the southern kingdom, after the kingdom split, the tribes of Judah, uh, uh, Judah had 19 kings and one queen, but thankfully eight of them were, uh, I'm going to say, somewhat righteous. They still weren't perfect, but they were somewhat righteous. And guess what happens? God delays his judgment on Judah for 130 some years. And they're not, they're still conquered. They're still judged, but it's not till 586. Listen, I, I think you need to take this seriously. And vote for somebody who would bring, uh, at least be closer to God's kingdom. It might extend God's common grace for our country, even as we're going down the drain uh, for a few more generations. We don't know. Pray. See, the Israelites didn't have a choice of who their leader would be, but we do. Make a wise choice. That's all I'm going to say about that. Sound good? All right. Hey, let's wrap this up quick because I'm going a little long. But the idea is your kingdom come. And then he says, your will be done, Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven. Again, if you're going to go vote, compare it to God's will. What would he, what's more like the Bible? Thy will be done, not what I want, but what God wants. By the way, a key in this of discerning God's will, that's the easy part. We know what God wants. The key is getting my will out of the way and repenting. And so when I go to God with anything, no matter how trivial it might sound to me, something about saying it to him, I realize, hmm, maybe I should pray more about this issue than, you know, I I pray, I wish my spouse was less critical. And then I start to think as I spend time with the Lord, actually, I'm kind of critical. Lord, would you help me be less critical? And now suddenly I'm changing and it's just by spending time with him in prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, We need God to provide for us, to forgive us, to deliver us daily. Literally, this this could even be translated, give us today tomorrow's bread. Give us today what we need for tomorrow. Lord, Lord, provide for us. Um, Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then in some translations, there's been an addition at some point in time that said, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Loved ones, let's go about this week believing God is powerful.
Don't be dismayed by the election. Don't. God's a whole lot more powerful than whoever gets elected. And don't think, too, at the same time that he doesn't care, because he does. He's personal. So run to him like a small child would, boldly, willing to ask anything. Amen? Let me pray, and uh, we'll sing, and we'll call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks that you love us, that you care about us, and um, that you care about things that sometimes we deem trivial. But the reality is... You know us inside and out better than we know ourselves. And your delight is simply to hear from us. And as you hear from us and as we spend time with you, you uh, conform us into the image of your son. Both, I believe, through hearing from you and your word and from you hearing from us in prayer. Jesus, I pray you'd give us courage to ask for big things, not to be afraid, not to doubt but to really believe that you're powerful, to really believe that that you care even about the smallest things that we ask too. Might you make us a praying people who love you and spend time with you. Might you make me a praying man. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray all of this through him. Amen.